Hello, I'm Rabbi Avi Green. And I'm Dr. Akiva Daum. And, and welcome, welcome to Interesting, Interesting Questions. I am a rabbi with ordination from Yeshiva University and a doctorate in education. I have a medical degree with specialization in general and addiction psychiatry. In this podcast, we will seek to take different questions that come up in the Torah and evaluate them from a psychological standpoint as well as a religious standpoint. Please note that in many of these situations, we will be looking at things that may be viewed as controversial. It is specifically to bring about questions that many people have had and bring in to light different levels of evaluation and it'll get people to think about things in a different way. Avi, in this week's Parsha, we begin by introducing Yosef's sons, Ephraim and Menashe. Now, when we bless daughters, we mention the Imaot. And yet, when we bless sons, we mention Ephraim and Menashe, who are, as I said, introduced in this Parsha. And really, we don't hear much else about them. They're clearly important, they're clearly of significance, and yet, I'm a little lost. Help me, help me with this, please. So there are two parts to answering your question. The first part is understanding that the bracha that we give our children actually comes from a tradition that is done on Yom Kippur, started on Yom Kippur to bless the children, um, and then expanded to giving a blessing to the children every Shabbat. Um, In addition, it began, as many things do in Judaism, with the male version, and then a female version was found. But I want to talk about why the male version uses Ephraim and Menashe. And to do that, I think we need to take a macro look at our forefathers. And so I want to look at the story of Avraham to Yitzchak. Avraham has two male children, Yishmael and Yitzchak. And the younger of the two is the one who becomes the next of the forefathers. Yitzchak has two children, Esav and Yaakov. And Yaakov, who is the younger, becomes the next of the forefathers. And there are some other things that designate the fact, other than just being the second or the younger child, that they become the forefather. They go through certain levels of trials and tribulations. They have to go on some sort of journey um, that is usually somewhat traumatic. Um, And in addition, there is, it seems, clear... Uh, a, a clear pattern, if you're following along, that Yosef should be the next in that line, right? He is a younger child. He goes through trials and tribulations. He would seem to become the next one in line to be the fourth of the forefathers. And I would like to propose, although I have not seen this in the traditional literature, that when he has Benjamin come to uh, Egypt and puts the cup into Benjamin's bag. He is trying to put Benjamin through some of those trials and tribulations as well in the hopes of sharing this 
this uh, this forefatherness with um, with his brother Benjamin, and then he sees that his brothers, his other brothers, have really repented. They have done tshuva, and now he decides he wants to spread it with all of them. But he's not sure that's going to really work. And so what he does is he brings his children, Ephraim and Manasseh, to his father for a blessing. And as far as I can tell, it is the only example we have in the Torah of a grandfather giving a blessing to their grandchildren. And what ends up happening is that, sure enough, as Yaakov is about to give the bracha to Ephraim and Menashe, he, uh, Yosef puts the older son by the right hand and the younger son by the left hand, and yet Yaakov switches his hands, therefore giving the technically stronger blessing to the younger son. And so you might think this trend is going to continue of the younger son being more powerful. And in fact, in the blessing that he gives them, he says, and the younger shall overtake the older. However, one of the things that we see is that Ephraim and Menashe, whether it's because they grew up in Egypt or whether they grew up differently because of the way Yosef was raised, they are a functional family, possibly the only functional family in Sefer Breshit, which is a book full of dysfunctional families. And so perhaps part of the reason that we uh, bless our children with the blessing that they should be like Ephraim and Menashe is because we want them to grow up caring about each other and not fighting and wanting them to, to be together and to care about each other. One of the counterpoints that I would raise, or, or additional points, it's not really a counterpoint, but one of the additional points I would raise is the idea that as we go through life, right, we set expectations for our children. And we have to ask ourselves what kind of expectations we want for them. Right? When we bless them, many families have the custom of not only saying the actual words of the blessing, but giving either their own personal blessing or sometimes even asking a question. What went well for you this week? I hope that this is a great week for you, right? Some sort of additional bracha that is very personal. And so, Akiva, I'm going to turn it back to you and ask you, when we set our expectations for our children, how do we measure right? We, we all want our children to achieve and to be successful. So how do we set high expectations without making those expectations so high and so impossible that they are unreachable? Setting too high of expectations. You know, it's very interesting because I think that we both set expectations too high and also, we set expectations at times too low. And what do I mean by that? I think that, 
Yes, we, we do expect a lot of our children. We expect them to be straight-A students. We expect them to be wonderful athletes. We expect them to go all to Ivy League schools and get these amazing jobs and get these, you know, post, postgraduate degrees and to really, like, we, and, and we want them to also be, you know, dancers and bakers and cookers and, and they have to do everything, right? We set up our, our children as not only can you do everything, but you have to do everything. And if you're not doing everything and you're not doing it perfectly, then guess what? Not good enough. And at the same time, we have the same system where because of that, many of us, and I think this is certainly more of a difficulty in certain situations than others, where we expect that if our child didn't do well, for example, if they didn't do well on an exam, oh, it wasn't my perfect child who didn't do well on the exam, and you're nodding because you're an educator, and I know you've had to deal with this. (laughs) It is because the test is the problem. The teacher, my child should have gotten 100%. Your test just did not ask the right questions, or you didn't give the right review sheet, or not my tatala didn't uh, Let's be honest, it's not that the test is the problem. It becomes that the teacher is the problem. Right. And... So I think that whole situation is the issue because the truth is is that there's a lot of pieces. It's a very, very big question. Are our expectations too high? Sometimes, yes. Sometimes we expect our children to do too much and we don't give them any free time. We don't give them the opportunity to sit and daydream, to think about what they want We tell them what they must do every minute of the day. And the truth is, is that I don't know how many in our generation had that. We didn't have play dates. We didn't have cell phones. We ran around and we came home at night. And what'd you do today? I hung out with my friends. I did this. I did that. Uh, I don't know. I don't want to talk to you. That That was what happened. Now... We have kids who have cell phones and are expected to be this, that, and we have to organize, and you don't knock on someone's door unless you called them ahead of time and made sure that it's okay that little Timmy is dropped off. And I think that the problem is it's a balance, right? We can certainly say how today's world is different and we have the technology to be more available and know what's going on, and there's definitely merits to that, so I don't want to suggest that it should swing one way or the other. I'm very much a middle of the road. There are some things that are wonderful and some things that perhaps have gone overboard and vice versa, but I think that having an expectation that someone is going to do something every minute of the day and excel at it and still have creativity and free thought and no, not possible. You know, we have... I remember when I was in elementary school. I don't think I learned to read till after kindergarten. It's clearly, it worked out okay. I can tell you that I am, I'm a pretty good, you know, reader and my comprehension works, and I'm not concerned about that. Children today, the expectation is, is that they learn to read in, in kindergarten. And is that a bad thing? Not necessarily. But, but for some kids, they're not developmentally ready to read in kindergarten, and we shouldn't see that as 
a lack in them. It is simply that they are not ready. Exactly. And it's no different in some ways than the rule of you have to be toilet trained by a certain time. Yes, at some point it becomes concerning because the question is, is is there a neurodevelopmental delay? However, not every child is going to be toilet trained by the age of three when they're ready to go to their Their three-year-old early childhood. And that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong. It doesn't mean that we need to do something different. And it used to be, right, we would say, well, the child is just, you know, when they had all these different, I, to, to use the most, possibly the most appropriate term, I say mo- possibly because we, we do change them regularly, but if someone is neuroatypical. Um, in some ways, we're more mindful of that now, certainly in more sub-settings more than others. And I think it's better than it used to be where they would just say, oh, your kid's just a bad kid, uh, which we know now is certainly not the case. Everybody has different needs. And yet there are still situations where we do see, and I, I know this is also true. Again, you as an educator can say there's certain places that perhaps they're not as well equipped as others to work with children who fall in a variety of different boxes. So again, that all has to do with setting expectations. Because if I set an expectation that should be for one child and then expect another child to fall into that same expectation, that's not necessarily reasonable. Expectations do need to be based in part on where the child is reasonably expected to go. Now, I did once have a a very important mentor who did share with me that if we set the bar too low, we risk tripping on it. So I think that's important too, and that's why the bar should never be so low that we just say, oh, well, you know, it's the teacher's fault or there's something wrong. It Sometimes, yeah, you do need to expect your child to study more or to ask for help before the night that the project is due. Uh, and And we do have to sometimes let our children fail because that's how we grow. We don't grow by having the world change around us. We grow by changing the world and changing ourselves to effectively improve. So that's that whole interesting piece. And I'm going to take it a step further, though, because one of the things that that is brought to my mind when I hear, you know, Ephraim and Menashe, Menashe and Ephraim, is, is it at any point a self-fulfilling prophecy? Right in the beginning, Yaakov says, this one will be greater than that one. How do we know? How did he know? And, and yes, we could certainly go from the halachic standpoint of, you know, that was, that was what he visioned and, and that's what he prophesied and that's, and, and that's fine. And I would also ask from the psychological standpoint is, do we find sometimes that if we set someone up with a certain setting, are they going to meet that or are they going to break the mold and achieve differently? I'm sure, again, and I'm going to throw this right back at you, Avi, as an educator, do we do that with kids? Do we set them up for this is the prophecy, this is the what we expect of you, and if you are not as able to excel in this area, 
is that what we see? Is that okay? Is that what it should be? Or do we have an obligation to take a child from one set of expectation and help them to exceed that? So there is a, an apocryphal story that is told about a teacher who gets a list of students um, and all of the students on the list have a little asterisk next to their name. And the teacher, who's new to this particular school, thinks that the asterisk means that these are the gifted students. And so he begins to teach them, assuming that they are all gifted and setting expectations as if they are all gifted. And only around December does he find out that that means that each of these students was actually on the free lunch program. And yet, he looked at these students and he set the expectations in the bar very high and they were able to reach it. And I think that the idea of whether you call it high expectations, whether you call it self, self-fulfilling prophecy, um, I think that over and over again it has generally been proven both to the positive and to the negative. Um, we talked before about if somebody is successful, even if they come from a dysfunctional family, it is because someone in their life has said, I believe in you. I think you can do X, Y, or Z really well, right? And so they have set those expectations or, or opened a door for that person to certain expectations. Um, and I think the same is true with low expectations, right? If we, if we say, you'll never be good at that, Right, Or if we say, this isn't something that we're good at in our family, right? Uh, one of the things, one of the, one of the, the things that I have had to uh, censor myself on is making sure that I don't say, we're not good at math in our family. Because the truth is, both my children have surpassed my level of math already. Um, both. The, the two older ones, the one who's in, in second grade, I can keep up, fortunately. But in terms of being able to take calculus and beyond, both my children have surpassed the math that I took in high school. So maybe it's just I'm not good at math, or maybe I'm self-limiting, and I could be good at math if I went back and really applied myself. But at the end of the day, um, if we set our expectations for ourselves, and if we spe- set our expectations for our children... And if we have them for our students or people that we are teaching too low, then that's the bar that they will, they will reach. And if we set it high, they can truly reach that level as well. It has to be realistic. You have to be able to actually reach that bar. So Akiva, there are a lot of people who don't like conflict. In fact, they avoid it. And only when they reach a point where they cannot take it anymore do they finally explode and unload on, whether it's the person who deserves it or whoever happens to be nearby, with all of the things that are going wrong, that are terrible, that the person has done against them, for them, to them. And this is probably not so healthy. It seems that Yaakov may have been this way as a parent. 
we've talked previously about how he doesn't necessarily address some of the issues that arise with his children when he is parenting them. And yet, now as he is on his deathbed, he seems to address all of the things that they have done wrong. He seems to address all of his concerns about them in these final moments. So my question to you is twofold. One, what do we know about these people who try to avoid conflict and do these kinds of things? And two, is there a way for those of us who are not fond of conflict to sort of get over our concerns and be able to address things in a healthier way? It reminds me of a situation where either you're an employee and it's time for your review and you get your review and you look at it and you say, well, I, I thought I was doing everything right. What does this mean? And maybe it's even a step further. Maybe it's your review and a termination notice. And... Again, it's that when were you given the option to improve? Why, why was this saved up for the last six months, 12 months, sometimes three months before, you, before something was said to you? And similarly, it also reminds me for those who aren't in that stage of life yet where they're working of maybe you're in a university setting and it doesn't matter how much homework you do, and it doesn't matter how much studying you do, your entire grade is based off of one final project, final paper, final exam. That's not a representation necessarily of everything along the way, nor is it an opportunity to be able to see how you have prog progressed and where you need to remit and where you need to improve. And... That's kind of right. That's what, that's what Yaakov does. He says on his deathbed, and by the way, you were great, and you did terrible, and you grew, and you changed, and you did wonderful things, and you were a failure from the start. And, and again, so, so is, it that he, is it that he avoided confrontation? Is it that he just, that was the parent he was? And again, as we said, that was kind of addressed multiple times, and I think this is just yet another example of that. But moving on to the how do we address that? How do we change that about ourselves if we're not someone who can process along the way? I think there's two, there's two pieces to it. Not only are you someone who bottles everything up, but another idea would be also are you someone who can't accept constructive criticism along the way? Because both of those are a danger. If you're somebody who bottles things up, another example I would, I would kind of, how it can be visualized is a bottle of soda. You shake it and shake it and shake it, and eventually when you open it, it explodes. And for many of us who have had this experience before, how do you deal with it? Well, you catch the bubbles coming up, you open it, close, open, close, open, close. So it slowly lets the gas out. And so similarly, I think for those of us who have a habit of bottling everything up, the way to work through that is to become more mindful of your situation and 
begin to talk about what's going on. There's a lot of people who do not discuss their emotions, who do not discuss their day, who don't process what has happened. And then, yeah, you're absolutely right. They explode at some point, just like that bottle of soda. That's not helpful for anyone because the truth is, is that at that point, it's been so long that the likelihood is that person has no idea what they're actually upset about. And the person that is being expelled upon has no idea what they've done if they're even the party involved. And so I think, really, it involves communication, improving that ability to communicate with others and process with yourself when there's something that you don't like, when there's something that you do like, when there's something that needs to be changed, mention it. Figure out how to say in a healthy and constructive way because you want someone to hear you too. And I think the tact that I would use and do use when I'm explaining to people the importance of not just opening the soda and pointing it at someone else, but instead open close, is that if you can learn to effectively communicate what your needs are, then the other party listening may actually be able to meet those needs and make those changes. And you can then also have the opportunity to communicate with that individual if they're not, that that's important to you and this is what you're trying to do to help that happen. Again, a lot of it is communication. The next part of your question was, is, well, what if you're not someone who likes to have conflicts? How do you, how do you get to the point where you can start to voice your needs? Because maybe that's the big hurdle. Occasionally, there are people who purposefully seek to rub us the wrong way or cause us dismay. Contrary to what may be the most common belief out there, this is not usually people's primary goal, right? It takes a lot of effort to try and annoy someone, and it's probably not happening on purpose. So I think in many ways, if you go at it the mindset of, this is probably not intentional, and if I tell the person that I need something different, again, that communication piece, then it gives that person the opportunity to, who is more than likely inadvertently doing something, for lack of a word, let's call it wrong, uh, but it's not necessarily wrong, wrong for you, then they may have the opportunity to be made aware of it and make a change. And I would, I would use the example for, for how many times someone is finding themselves annoyed with their spouse for not, maybe not giving them five minutes when they come home from a, a long drive uh, from work. Maybe they need five minutes to decompress. If you've never asked that of your significant other, to expect that may not be reasonable because maybe they don't need that and maybe they don't want that and... Maybe they don't think about it. They're not purposefully trying to annoy you. They don't know. And again, so it's really an opportunity for you to say, okay, well, it's not conflict. It's me voicing my needs. And this other person who I've allowed into my life may actually want to hear that so that they cannot upset me because they don't want to deal with the ramifications six days later after I've exploded at them for putting a dish in the wrong spot, 
because I never bothered to tell them, you know, I just need five minutes when I get home from work. So I want to try something new, Akiva. I want to leave our listeners with a question that they can take to their Shabbos table as we end Sefer Breshit. In this week's Parsha of Vayechi, Yaakov compares many of his children to animals. Binyamin is compared to a wolf. Dan is compared to a gazelle. And in some other cultures, there is what they call spirit animals, or if you're into Harry Potter, there's your Patronus. And so the idea is, if you were going to be represented by an animal, what animal would you want representing you? And it's not simply a matter of, well, a lion is strong and courageous, and so I want to be strong and courageous, but it's also a matter of how you might feel. So for instance, do you feel like you are a... Uh, donkey because you feel like you have to carry a heavy burden every day back and forth? Do you feel like you are a uh, a horse because you are quick and you are graceful? Right? Um, so thinking about and talking with your family about what characteristics might be representative in an animal and how that animal might represent you. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to reach us, you can reach us at iqdiscuss at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you and responding. You'll be able to fly under your own power. It's not a realistic goal. But if you say, you can figure out how to make a machine fly, they may reach that goal.